Today, one of India's top cancer specialists, now leading a global movement to tackle medical overuse in low- and middle-income countries. If you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, right? As we'll hear, for Professor C.S. Pramesh, the COVID pandemic that's ravaged India and the world is also an opportunity to intensify efforts to stop doing things in healthcare that do no good and may be harmful. A pandemic is not an excuse to abandon evidence-based medicine because what you need most during a uh, crisis is actually evidence-based medicine. Welcome to The Recovery, the podcast featuring the people working for a more sustainable healthcare, produced by Cochrane Sustainable Healthcare and co-published with the BMJ. I'm Ray Moynihan, and I'm delighted to be joined by co-host and BMJ Editor-in-Chief, Fiona Godley. Thanks, Ray. And I'm delighted to introduce this interview with Professor C.S. Pramesh, who's leading India's Choosing Wisely campaign, which produces recommendations to reduce unnecessary tests and treatments. He also runs the biggest and one of the most respected cancer centres in India, the Tata Memorial in Mumbai. And in recent years, he helped create a national programme to establish consistent quality standards of cancer care for all people in India. Perhaps it shouldn't come as a surprise that when we asked him about the problem of overuse and low-value care, Pramesh also wanted to talk about underuse of effective interventions – citing a study about the underuse of a breast cancer drug, trastuzumab, or Herceptin. So we did this study on trastuzumab for breast cancer, which, as all of us know, is a breakthrough blockbuster drug for breast cancer, had a 10% improvement in overall survival, which is remarkable by any uh, standards. We did this study at the Tata Memorial to see what proportion of patients who are eligible for trastuzumab actually received the drug. And to our dismay, in 2008, when we did this study, it was just 8%. 8% of people who could get a 10% survival, an absolute survival benefit with trastuzumab could actually afford the drug, which meant that the vast majority of patients who could uh, benefit from it were denied the possibility of getting the drug primarily because they couldn't afford it. And this is, again, thanks to a policy of uh, most of India's cancer care being funded out of pocket. We spent 1.5% of our GDP on uh, public health care, which means that the, the vast majority of India's patients is not able to afford this care. So this were, these were pretty sobering statistics. And when you dwell deeper into it, to where this 1.5% of public health care expenditure actually goes, you realize that a vast majority of this actually goes towards futile end-of-life care. I will be the first person to defend end-of-life care, palliative care where it matters, But the problem here was that we were spending a vast majority of our cancer care budget on the last life, last month or last two months of chemotherapy being administered to a patient with advanced disease. So it's a a really interesting arc of your story there, Pramesh, because what you're saying is by trying to achieve um, improving access across the country, um, you discover uh, and, and trying to seek uniform standards, you discover a really important area of underuse, under under availability of a, of a life-saving drug, um, and then that the money that could be going on, that the people's out of people's precious money that they're spending could be going on these uh, these effective drugs is actually being squandered on 
um, ineffective uh, and possibly harmful treatment. So that have I got that art correct? Because it's a it's a it's a it's really wanting people to get 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 the treatment that works and and not to spend the waste resources on the treatments that don't. That's 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 absolutely correct, Fiona. Uh, you hit the nail on the head. You have on one extreme patients who aren't able to afford uh, really uh, effective drugs. The public healthcare is unable to support them, and on the other extreme, you have. Uh, so, so if you were to look at some of the state-of-the-art treatments that are available in India, there are virtually no boundaries. You want proton therapy, you'll get it. You want CAR T cell therapy, you'll get it. You want robotic surgery, you'll get it. You want the fanciest immunotherapy drugs, you'll get it. But on the other hand, you also have people who cannot afford basic healthcare, which which completely uh, skews the overall. Uh, provision of healthcare delivery that we are giving. And that point you make about if you want robotic surgery, you can get it. If you want proton beam therapy, you can get it. Uh, 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 the, the phrase supplier-induced demand is the one that immediately springs to mind. Is that the main driver, that, that if you have a proton beam therapy uh, clinic, you're going to want as many people through the door as possible and you're going to promote that regardless of whether that patient will benefit? Is that? Am I being cynical or is that a, a major driver here? No, no, you're not being cynical at all because it is a major driver here. If you set up a proton uh, therapy center or if you have robotic surgery, I mean, if you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, right? So we are building a proton therapy center ourselves. So I will be the last to trash it as an unnecessary uh, medical intervention. It has its uses. Uh, there are plenty of pediatric cancers, plenty of neurological cancers which benefit from it. But uh, if you don't have the volumes to support treating only patients who have those indications, then you slightly broaden your indications to in, to include some of those less, uh, 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 the ones which have lower benefit, then you slowly expand that even more to have some which have very little benefit. We have a large number of patients with advanced recurrent cancers who would not benefit from proton therapy being treated by that uh, uh, as we speak. And Pramesh, so if if you've got a system, and this is not just in India, but in in, in many or even most countries around the world, where where medical staff are paid more for doing more, how can you tackle that aspect of medical overuse? I know it's not the only cause of medical overuse, but how how that particular aspect of it? How do you tackle that? I'm afraid I don't have a, a perfect answer to that, uh, but unfortunately, that seems to be the direction where most of our uh, incentives or most of our reimbursement seems to be headed, including what is the largest health insurance scheme in the world, which has been launched by the Indian government a couple of years back, that you pay for service. So what you ultimately end up doing is to try and fit what can be the best uh, remuneration that it can get me as a provider, as opposed to what is the best treatment that I can offer a patient. And it's primarily because outcomes, which are probably the most important uh, uh, criterion to base your reimbursements or remuneration on, is a difficult uh, endpoint to reach. So if you were to look at outcomes as in, let's look at five-year survivals or let's look at quality of life, to me, there are only two important endpoints in cancer. How well do you live and how long do you live as a result of your treatment? And if you're not able to impact on overall survival or on quality of life, I think we are using other surrogates merely as a strut to defend what we are doing right, rather than actually benefit patients. Uh, and one of the 
approaches uh, uh, that, that we ha- hold out hope for is that patients and the public will become more and more informed and therefore they can advocate for themselves if their medical professionals are not going to be, um, you know, r- really a true advocate for their, for their health um, because of the, the perverse incentives that, that you've mentioned. To what extent is, is, is patient power a, a, a likely um, way of tackling overuse in, in India? So I, I, I think overall, it's probably the most powerful uh, way of doing this. But having said that, uh, we've seen, especially over the last 18 months, about how people, the lay public, have responded to so-called breakthroughs. So if you were to look at, uh, let, let's forget about India, let's, forget about, uh, let's think about it globally. The number of uh, cures that have been touted for COVID over the last 18 months, which have been embraced by people perfectly literate, educated, aware uh, lay public, whether it be uh, hydroxychloroquine when we started off to ivermectin to convalescent plasma, we've had this plethora of uh, so-called cures that have been offered as part of COVID cure and which are based on very little science or evidence or any kind of data to support it. So, I'm not holding my breath for the lay public or the general population to drive this in the immediate future. But long term, I think this is a a lever that we definitely need to use to ensure that uh, healthcare providers provide what is most important for the patient rather than what is most important for the provider. From where you're sitting, Pramesh, how important is this problem of overuse in India and more generally in, in low and middle income settings? No, I think it's a very important problem. Uh, it's something that we need to wake up to and uh, start recognizing, start auditing, uh, in, bring in interventions like choosing wisely to try and reduce uh, these kind of uh, low-value interventions, come up with a post-intervention audit to see how much impact this has had. This is not something that happens very frequently in low-middle-income countries because once you realize the value of uh, these choosing wisely initiatives and avoiding overuse, the fact that you're able to offer the same resources to people who deserve it much more is enough reward for a clinician to continue doing what they're doing and for a policymaker in government to to put their weight behind this uh, initiative. Pramesh, we're going to talk now a little bit about your work with Choosing Wisely because in a way you have decided to do something about this problem of too much medicine, of overuse, along with your work trying to lift the quality of cancer care. And we're going to talk a bit about some recommendations specifically on COVID. But first, let's talk about um, the Choosing Wisely recommendations you've released in India to, uh, you know, to try and get more rational cancer care. And for people who don't know what Choosing Wisely is, can you just uh, briefly tell us what Choosing Wisely is and, and what you've recommended there? Uh, thanks, Ray. That's a great question. Uh, so Choosing Wisely is an initiative which was started by the American Board of uh, Internal Medicine a few years back. And this was primarily directed towards uh, how can we avoid low value or possibly even harmful practices that are common in clinical practice. And this goes across the board, whether it's cancer or diabetes or antimicrobial resistance or practically every aspect of healthcare, and trying to identify those and flag them as uh, areas of uh, overuse or abuse of uh, known interventions. And there are plenty of them. So we've done two choosing wisely interventions so far, one for cancer in low middle income countries, and the second, which was 
the for covid-19 and this applies globally not just low middle income countries and what we were struck by were where the number of interventions from which we had to narrow down so for sake of uh, brevity choosing wisely recommends that you have between 5 and 10 recommendations because you don't want to dilute the strength of these recommendations by having 125 recommendations which are unlikely to be followed so but, so you are struck by the large number of interventions which are low value or actually harmful for patients which have no evidence base but are frequently practiced in clinical practice so this was the effort with which the american board of internal medicine launched this a few years back and and are we hearing from you that this is not just a problem in higher income countries this is a real problem in low and middle income countries as well absolutely so uh, while this is a much bigger problem in uh, high income countries so all you need to do is is to look at uh, healthcare expenditure by different countries and there's this fascinating paper that we uh, uh, were part of uh, which looked at what are the outcomes of cancer dependent on depending on what you spent on cancer care and there's virtually no correlation you have some of the highest spending countries uh, in europe having some of the suboptimal outcomes with prostate cancer treatment and some of the middling uh, level expenditure having some of the best outcomes with prostate cancer treatment so this is clearly not a problem that's restricted to low middle income countries and not to high income countries as well because as i mentioned to you earlier the the problems about overuse of uh, interventions which have very little evidence base to support them is is fairly common especially for people who are able to afford it so the problem here the the the, the difference here is that while most of the low value uh, high expenditure uh, interventions are supported by out of pocket expenditure in uh, low middle income countries these are actually supported by public healthcare expenditure in high income countries so so we're in the middle of a pandemic and I, and i must say that talking about overuse or overdiagnosis in the middle of this pandemic has been very difficult it's 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 been very challenging but but what i'm hearing from you is that it's it's actually extremely relevant and i guess that's one of the reasons that you released that choosing wisely a list of recommendations um you know specifically about covid-19 and you, and you published it in nature medicine and there's a, there's a list of five things to do for the public things like get tested get vaccinated but there's a list of five don'ts for doctors um and they include you know don't prescribe treatments that are ineffective or useless or even harmful i mean it seems extraordinary that in this situation that would be happening but 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 that's been your experience has it in india it has so going through some of the uh, prescriptions which uh, friends and colleagues have received for uh, the treatment of covid-19 over the last 18 months is is going through this huge uh, laundry list of medications practically everything starting from vitamin c to zinc to hydroxychloroquine to ivermectin to fabiparavir i could i could go on and on and we all know that most of them actually don't work there are very few interventions which work in covid-19 and thanks to some of the studies like the recovery trial which were uh, ran out of the uk and to which i'm eternally grateful for for having provided some of the best evidence based interventions that we currently have most of these other interventions are are based more on 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 uh, opinions and eminence based medicine so it really doesn't uh, do anyone a favor by uh, 
offering all of these interventions and and the worst part about some of these are i'll take convalescent plasma as an example in india during the peak of both the first wave and the second wave we had family members running helter skelter trying to get donors who could provide uh, convalescent plasma in an effort to what they felt would be the difference between saving their uh, family members life and nothing and and this was based on very little evidence we actually had a randomized trial coming out of india which suggested that convalescent plasma was not useful but in spite of this we had thousands of family members we all our social media were filled with requests for do you know a donor who is convalescent and who could potentially be a donor and this is actually harmful because you are you are not only not providing the evidence based care but you are making the last few days or uh, minutes of a family members life miserable by what if what if i had been able to provide that donor to my uh, loved one and would that have made the difference between saving that person's life or not i think this is cruel and 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 for you is is the harm to the individual and obviously the cost out of pocket cost as well is that the major problem or is it the sort of waste of resources and the opportunity cost for the system or or is that a false dichotomy i mean some people see any waste particularly in low resource settings as harmful i mean h- how do you think about it is it is it a harm or is it a waste or or, or how do you see it from a purely low middle income uh, perspective i think it's both but i must emphasize here that uh, the american board of internal medicine as well as choosing wisely international emphasizes that the reason for identifying these recommendations should not be based on costs including opportunity costs so it should be based purely on the low value and the harm that it provides and the waste of resources but i see things a little differently coming from the context that uh, i work in which means that in addition to these wasted resources it also has huge costs including opportunity costs attached to it so to me uh, it uh, it does seem like a false dichotomy but i wouldn't argue with someone who said that we really shouldn't dilute the choosing wisely recommendations by bringing cost into the equation this podcast is all about hearing from people who are trying to wind back unnecessary care in order to get more sustainable systems and 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 you're certainly doing that promotion i'm sure you're doing it in 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 concert with a lot of colleagues and i think many of us have seen the pandemic as setting back the work trying to wind back uh, unnecessary care but i'm hearing from you that the pandemic may in fact be offering an opportunity to to increase our attention to this problem of too much medicine i i agree with you so you could look at the glass half full or half empty uh, the pandemic has had a adverse impact on uh, choosing wisely by the sense that with the sheer panic that it's created people are more inclined to think let's hit it with everything that we have so what if we give a few extra vitamin doses or zinc or convalescent plasma it's not doing much harm anyway so let's do it because it might make the difference between life and death but at the same time i think many scientists many clinicians are taking the approach that uh, everything that we dealt with over the last 18 months uh, which were which was not evidence based to start with have been proven based on subsequent studies to be non beneficial and in sometimes even harmful uh, hcq is a classic example for that and i think it's it's a question of which of these two philosophies win 
I don't think we should uh, shame someone into trying to hit everything, uh, hit COVID with everything because desperate times call for desperate measures and I wouldn't really argue too much with that. But uh, given what we know now, given the fact that we've had a number of studies which have uh, looked at the evidence objectively, including with HCQ, with ivermectin, with convalescent plasma, at this point to use this as a learning uh, tool to to uh, kind of prioritize our future interventions. And I, I keep saying this, that uh, and a pandemic is not an excuse to abandon evidence-based medicine because what you need most during a uh, crisis is actually evidence-based medicine. An international conversation on this is something that, that, that the BMJ and, and the work that Ray's been doing and uh, the Cochrane um, Review Group on Sustainable Healthcare I've been working to try to kind of drive an international conversation, and we have the the conference preventing overdiagnosis, which um, you know pulls together examples and and uh, approaches to tackling it. Um, I, I wonder whether you see any possibilities of of new global alliances to collaborate on on investigating the problem and, and finding solutions. No, I, I think there's a huge opportunity here for uh, global collaborations, both with efforts of uh, identifying overdiagnosis, overtreatment efforts like the choosing wisely uh, uh, initiative, but also another element which is often forgotten, uh, especially in low-middle-income countries, which is probably what they need the most, which is a, 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 a reasonable way of health technology assessment. You're listening to Indian cancer specialist Professor C.S. Pramesh talking about the need for strong health technology assessment. That's a term for rigorous evaluation of the benefits and harms of a medical test or treatment run in some countries by government groups, such as the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, or NICE, in the UK, which plays a big role in what gets done within the UK's National Health Service, the NHS. So I think folks in the UK are blessed with the fact that they have NICE, which looks at evaluating uh, new treatments, trying to see whether it's value for money, and then coming up with a a decision which then gets adopted by the NHS. In India and in many other low-middle-income countries, because of the lack of this robust uh, health technology assessment platform, we are faced with this solution, with this uh, this question of whether to to offer a new treatment as uh, a standard for its general population, with very little information which feeds into it by way of what's the benefit, what's the actual cost of implementing something like it. Very often people equate the cost of a drug to what the implementation is. There's so many other factors involved in it. What does it take for a person to reach the hospital, get a prescription, all of that. And then figuring out whether the benefit that you see in real life is actually Uh, what you want to get for the kind of money that you're spending. So I think there's huge opportunity for global collaborations, both with initiatives like Choosing Wisely. But again, I would emphasize the importance of a good health technology assessment platform. So strengthening evaluation through health technology assessment or whatever form it takes in different countries is, is clearly one of the things we have to do. But but just more broadly, in terms of how you try and communicate this problem to people, you've talked a bit through this interview about the, the huge demand, particularly when people are suffering, um, for whatever, you know, give me whatever it takes. How, 
how do you communicate? I mean, just give us an example, if you will, from your family or friendship circles or even your colleagues. How do you communicate the importance of having a different approach here and, and trying to wind back the stuff that's unnecessary and harmful? That's, that's a really difficult uh, uh, proposition, both with, with, both with uh, professional colleagues as well as with, uh, with uh, patients. So this is a difficult conversation to have, but I think it's uh, important to have these difficult conversations. It's not going to change overnight. Even with professional colleagues, this is a difficult conversation to have because I've had people who come up to me and said, uh, if a patient out of their own free will decides that I'll spend a lot of money, even if it means a couple of weeks of extra life, how do you, who are you to decide whether those two weeks of extra life is worth the money that they are spending and why are you taking that autonomy out of that patient's decision? I'm all for patient autonomy, but what it actually boils down is to provide realistic estimates of benefit and cost and try and gently nudge patients towards uh, making rational choices. Pramesh, one of the uh, initiatives linked to the Too Much Medicine campaigns that Ray and the BMJ have been involved in is about uh, looking at the levels of independence of research, education and um, practice, independence from commercial influence. Um, it's always been interesting to me that the, the people who, who, who managed to really stand out in this area are those who've managed to protect their independence, who've, who've held out in some way um, because it's very difficult to do. You know, you're being encouraged to uh, take funding from a whole range of sources, I've no doubt. Um, and especially young people in their careers, you know, how do, how, do they, how do they build their career while really protecting their integrity and independence? I think that's a, a fundamental element of uh, uh, making decisions. And uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's one of the most important aspects that a young clinician or a young researcher should consider before deciding on uh, whether th they decide to take up an additional responsibility or not. To have the ability to speak your mind, to have the ability to allow just science to dictate what your decisions are is, is a blessing which I think very few of us uh, recognize the value of. The ability to be able to speak your mind regardless of uh, uh, commercial or sometimes even non-commercial pressures is something that's uh, extremely important. I would guard it to my uh, last breath and I would honestly and uh, fervently urge everyone who is embarking on a career to do that very early in their careers because once you start uh, getting compromised by the lack of independence that you ha have uh, as being part of being associated with commercial or non-commercial interests, I think it's going down a very slippery slope out of which it's extremely difficult to get out of. So uh, I would guard it with my last breath. Pramesh, you've um, made tackling overuse um, or, or low-value care a, a major focus of, of, of your professional life now, I, I, I gather. Uh, what would you say to people, uh, other healthcare professionals, um, how could they take some steps into this area? What would be the most effective ways in which they could um, add add their um, strength to this very important initiative? So I think one of the most, uh, so I'm speaking for India, uh, one of the most important aspects that uh, are not taught in medical school, whether it be undergraduate or postgraduate, 
is uh, on management and financial uh, uh, allocation. So we are taught a lot of very good science. We are taught everything about evidence-based medicine. We are taught what works and what doesn't work. What we are really not taught about is uh, how do you apportion limited resources? How do you make those kind of value judgments which uh, ensure that the maximum good uh, uh, occurs to the maximum number of people? These are these are things which are not taught. We've learned uh, by default uh, through personal experience rather than uh, a more formal way of doing this. And I think this is one of the most important areas that we need to address. You know that you have finite resources. You know that you have uh, 1.3 billion people to distribute this to. And finally, it comes down to an understanding of how can you ensure equitable distribution of care uh, amongst these people. And uh, to come to terms with the fact that health care should probably be a right and not a privilege which is available for the richest of the world's population. That's a beautiful way to end, Pramesh. Thank you so much. That it's, uh, it's, it's been really, it's been a great conversation. Pramesh, you're an inspiration. I know that those listening will, will, will find that too and, and uh, really lovely. I hope we can meet face-to-face at some point. And um, many, many thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Fiona and Ray. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to The Recovery, today with Professor C.S. Pramesh, director of the Tata Memorial Centre in Mumbai, India, who's helping lead Choosing Wisely's efforts in India and the wider low- and middle-income world. A huge thank you to Cochrane Sustainable Healthcare's Minna Johansson and Dina Muscat-Meng for production, for podcasting assistance from Duncan Jarvis at the BMJ, and to sound wizard Jan Mutz. And a big thanks to you for listening. <laughs>